0: For as long as I've known God, uh, for as long as I've been aware of the fact that God hears us or hears me when we pray, uh, I've lived my life with this kind of uh, transactional relationship with God, this kind of if-then. God, if you do this, then I'll do this, right? That my faith in God, I uh, dangled it out front in exchange for a future that I wanted, and this came to its head and its climax about um, 13 years ago when I was in Nigeria, um, and my family and I were on a dirt road, and we were robbed at gunpoint. So as we lay there on that dirt road, me living, probably about as inconsistent of a Christian life as somebody could live, it was at that point that I bartered with God. I said, Lord, if you'll save me. If you'll get us out of this, I promise that I'll spend the rest of my life telling people how good you are. And it worked. God saved us. And it was great. But because it worked, I thought that that was the way that things worked. God, I'm in trouble. I really need your help. If you give me the future that I long for, then I'll give you the faith that I think that you want. And it worked for a while until I found myself in college and I found out that things really didn't work that way. That the bottom fell out out, and I found myself in the same place where I really needed God's help and I tried to exchange him, my faith, for the future that I wanted. And what I found out was that the... Christian faith, prayer, getting things from God really wasn't as cut and dry as I thought that it was. To live life with that mindset is probably the most fertile soil for producing uh, uh, discontentment with God or with Christianity. Maybe for you, it hasn't been something that tragic, but one thing that I think that I know about all of us is that we default to this transactional relationship with God. You and I have this knack to take the, the raw data that is our lives and use it to form conclusions about what God thinks of us. We use it to form conclusions about how good God is to us. And one of the biggest pieces of raw data that we use is the way that God responds to our prayers. And so it takes place in this room right now. If we could split this, this room in half, there's two groups of folks here in this room. There's one that as you think of 2015 and as you think of this transactional relationship with God, you don't have a problem with it because it's worked. There's some here in this room that 2015 is, was a really, really good year. All the things that you prayed for, you got, Marriage is well. Kids are well. Your job, name it. God has come through on all of the if-thens, so things are good. But then there's those here in this room who find themselves in a place where things have not been so, so, so good. And you've seen that trying to barter with God really doesn't work out in the way that you hoped that it would. You were eager to get to 2016 because 2015 was full of pain. 2015 was full of marriages that didn't work. 2015 was full of heartache. 2015 was full of kids that didn't act right. 2015 was full of loss. And what takes place is when we pray and we ask God for really, really good things, and he doesn't come through on those good things, then we're faced with this one truth. It's We're faced with choosing. It's either God can't do anything or God won't. Right? We find ourselves in a place where we may just stop to pray because we feel like God doesn't actually have the power to change things or to change this or to change that person. Or... I feel most of us in here that believe that we serve a God that can do the impossible, find ourselves not saying that God can't, but feeling like God won't. And if we ask God for very, very good things, but come to the conclusion that he won't, then it leads us to ask why. Why won't he? Why won't he provide in the way that I hoped? Why won't he heal? Why won't he give me very, very good things? And once you ask why God won't, then you step in a pretty dangerous territory because you find yourselves coming likely to one of three conclusions. God won't, maybe God won't because God doesn't love me or at least God doesn't love me as much as he loves them, those that he will do stuff. So you spend your life trying to work for it, trying to earn God's love. Or you may think, God won't because I don't have enough faith. So you sit and you try to muster and get enough faith to ensure that God will give you the future that you want. And you find yourself frustrated because you realize faith isn't something that you can just create. You can't just tell yourself to have more faith. Or you think that God won't because you think maybe God is punishing me for something that I did. So you spend your life or your resolve for this year, maybe I just need to do better because if I do better, then God will give me what I want. And that's not Christianity, that's karma. So we find ourselves in this place where, though we have this transactional relationship with God, we feel like it really doesn't pan out. And all that that does in the hearts of you and I is it shows us that our faith isn't as solid as we think. At best, all of us in this room have faith that's like wet cement. It's still forming. And when God doesn't come through in the way that we need him to come through, it creates this Distance from God where we find ourselves wavering and doubting in faith. And the dangerous thing about coming to a new year is that we can tend to think that 2015 was our problem. We can tend to think the scenarios that we find ourselves in are a real problem problem, and we just need God to change things for us, and then things will be okay. Do you know the only thing worse than an injury, the only thing worse than being injured is having somebody misdiagnose the solution? When Pastor Richard tore his Achilles, the first doctor that he went to told him that he had a sprain. So for a week, he's on this leg, and it's not getting better. It's just getting worse. But then he went to a place, and they gave him the right diagnosis, and they said, this is the worst Achilles rupture I've seen. So what we don't want to do is be those that think our problem is just where we find ourselves. Circumstances are never our main problem. It's something much deeper. So the question lies, how do you and I maintain this consistent faith? How do you and I have strong faith when it seems like God can't or God won't use his ability and power for our good? And I think we turn to God's word. So if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. If you find yourself in that place, I want you to know that the Bible is for you. The Bible is written for real people that deal with real problems like the ones that we've talked through right now. So this past week, my wife and I just moved into a new house in the West End, finally. And what takes place is this. You move into a new house and you find out that there's there's things that kind of aren't as they should be. So what do I do? Do I ask my wife? No, because that would hurt my pride. I get on the computer and I search Google. So what I find out is I go there and I see whatever problem that I have, there's a million people that have gone through the same thing and have already found a solution that works. So I don't have to try new things. I just have to see people that have found themselves in the same place that I've been in and found a solution. This is what God's Word is for us. It is a catalog of people that find themselves in the same conundrums that you and I find ourselves in. And to the extent that they trust in God, they find the right solution. And this is written for you and I. The reason why we turn to this ancient book is because the God that we serve is perfect. And the thing about perfection is this. If you do it only makes it worse. You and I make these resolutions to do all of these great things in the new year because we're not perfect and we know that we need to change. If something is perfect, just right, and it changes, then it's no longer perfect. So we go to this book, and although it's ancient written thousands of years ago, it talks about a perfect God that doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to reinvent himself. So everything that he says is always relevant all the time. Thank you. I wish somebody here was grateful for this great God that we have. Daniel chapter 3. What we find out uh, is we come to a place where God's people are in exile as a result of their sin. This new king starts to rise up. And what he does is he tests the faithfulness of three boys. It was 12 years ago reading these verses in my NIV Bible in my dorm room that completely changed my life and, and the way that I looked at faith. And so here's what starts off. This king comes and he pulls all of the influential people of this place. So various leaders, influencers, rulers who all have their own gods and he builds this big statue and what he says is when the music comes on, y'all have to bow down and worship this statue. Turn your back on your own God or you'll die. And so look, all of the influences, leaders, people that should have been a model and example of a faith that really, really stood firm? Daniel chapter 3, 7 starts off and it says this. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that the king had set up. So you have a group of folks who all have their own gods, who are supposed to be models and examples of this firm faith that stands in the face of frustrating times. And as soon as they were threatened with death, was done. Martin Luther King says that if a man hasn't found something to die for, then he's not fit to live. And that's especially true for the Christian. Our faithfulness towards God is not based on a future, some outcome of safety. Our faithfulness of God is uh, towards God is worth more than life itself. And what takes place is these folks bow. And one thing that we see is this: every temptation towards Idolatry ultimately is an indictment on the ability of God to truly satisfy. Every time we're tempted to bow down and worship something else, and when we use this word idolatry, we don't mean you in your house bowing down to a statue. We mean anything that you look at and say, I can't live without, anything that you look at. And It is the center of your life. Anything other than God, every temptation to put something else at the center of your life is an indictment on the ability of God to truly satisfy. It says that God can't or God won't. So I need to take matters into my own hands, And it's instinctual for all of us who live for self-preservation and what takes place is all these, lo- all these rulers bow down, but you find these three boys who when once again threatened with the same death wouldn't bow down. Then when they were brought in to stand in front of the king and he threatened them once again, Daniel 3 verse 16 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you throw us into the flame, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. One of the things we've done through the course of the past few weeks is we've talked about what knowing God means. That if you know God, it means the past few weeks, you don't have to know fear. If you know God, it means you don't have to know want. If you know God, it means you don't have to know Despair, And right here with these guys, one thing that we see and find out is this. If, if you know God, knowing God means this, you don't have to know the future. Knowing God means that your faith is not contingent on a certain future that God brings. Knowing God means that regardless of the future that comes your way, there's a faith that can endure any obstacle. And so what we're going to see here is two components to this long-lasting, enduring, indestructible faith. And the very first one is this. Enduring faith always has to start with this. Confidence in God's ability to do the impossible. Enduring faith starts with God's confidence in God's ability to do the impossible. Verse 17 says this, if this be so, if you throw us into the flames, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What take place is these guys are set with obedience to God may very well cost them their life. And instead of backing down, we see a picture of guys who want to face a very real opposition says, we're not going to back down. Why? Because we really believe that God can do the impossible. What makes surrender to God easy is a belief that God can actually do the impossible. How do they have this? Where do they get this from? One thing that you would know is that in this culture, by a time that a boy was 13, it was expected that he would know the first five books of the Bible. Picture what would take place, right? Is if if this year you didn't just read through the first five books of the Bible, but you spent time memorizing the first five books of the Bible, pouring over all of those things, what you would have to do in your head is you would have to repeat again and again the great things that God has done. You would have to repeat and constantly tell yourself, constantly say out loud or in your head that God actually created this world from nothing. You would have to sit with the fact that God actually split a sea in two and saved a nation. You would have to sit with the fact that God actually miraculously fed people for 40 years in a desert. You would have to think that God kept people alive in a desert. You would have to sit with the fact that God time and again does the impossible for people who doubt that he can do it. For people that have been unfaithful, for people that have been untrustworthy, you would have to rehearse the fact that God can actually do the impossible. So you have a group of folks who they knew this. And then if you read Daniel chapter 1 and 2, what church took place is they live lives where God actually did the impossible for them and for their crew and for their boys. And God preserved them. You rehearse the faithfulness of God and you'll actually start to believe that God can do what he says that he can do. And if you believe that God can do what he says that he can do, then you find yourself at a place where you're free. And you don't have to take matters into your own hands Because you know who it is that's really on your side. It's a faith that's different. It's a faith that's not just you sitting at the bottom of Niagara Falls, watching somebody at the top walk across with a tightrope and a wheelbarrow and saying, I believe that you can do that and you won't fall. It's the type of faith that climbs up the side of the mountain and says, I believe that you won't fall so much that I'll get into the wheelbarrow and let you push me. That's faith. Because if that person fails, it's going to cost you something. The Bible has no category for a faith that's not going to cost you anything. And here's the beauty of what God does. He leaves us in these scenarios where it feels like my life is on the line to test the genuineness of our faith. To expose us to how, uh, how strong and how firm our faith is. And that's a gift from God because where we see that we're faithless, we can cry out and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Confidence in God's ability is the key to surrendering to God and to submit to God. Here's a practical way that you can do that this year. It's going to be novel. It's going to be big and it's huge. And so I want you to stay with me as I explain this. A practical way that you can do it this year is read your Bible Read the whole thing. Sit with somebody and say, it's so important that I constantly rehearse the faithfulness of God and what God has done in my life because I'm so quick to to forget it. I'm so quick to think that the things that I go through is unique. I'm so quick to think that my marriage is the only one that's in trouble and there's nothing that God can do. I'm so quick to think that my family is the only one in trouble and there's nothing that God can do. I'm so quick to think that I don't have the provision that I need and I'm the only one that goes through this and there's nobody that knows what I'm going through. As you sit and start to read this book, what you'll start to find out is if you're honest, you'll see parts of yourself in all the bad examples that we see here in the the text. And you'll see just how good God is with people who lack the faith to trust Him. And it will increase and bolster our, our faith. This is why we gather. This is why we come week in and week out to rehearse the faithfulness of God to people that forget it. If you're here, and with it being the front end of the year, You really made it up in your mind. I really have to start to come to church. I want to let you know that you're taking a great first step. Stick with it. Come around. Stay. And see what God does in your life as you're reminded of his faithfulness. So the question that I want to ask you is this. Where in your life right now? Do you find yourself doubting God's ability to deliver and to change things? Where? When you think of that, I want you to ask yourself this. How has it affected your ability to withstand temptation in that aspect of your life? If you doubt God's ability to change your spouse, it'll make you very impatient with your spouse. If you doubt God's ability to change your kids, it's going to make you incredibly impatient when they do things. If you doubt God's ability to provide for your needs, you're going to justify a million and one ways to do things that God has not called us to do. You're going to justify... A lack of integrity on your job. Where do you doubt God's faithfulness? And how has it hindered your ability to withstand temptation when it comes? Withstanding temptation. Temptation is always an indictment about God's ability to truly satisfy. You, you don't just need more patience. You don't just need more provision. You don't just need more money, what you need, what we need, is confidence and trust in the ability of God that we actually serve a God that can and does do the impossible. The first part or the first aspect to enduring faith or a faith that's powerful and really changes is this confidence in God's ability to do the impossible. And while that's great and while that's good, one thing that you and I find out is that at best, all that does is it creates a new problem for us. It's one thing to expect somebody to help you that can't. Because then if they don't, you're fine because you're like, you can't help me. If I'm getting into a fight right now, right here, if somebody walks through the door and we just start to fight... I'm not going to look back towards our kids and be upset that they didn't come and help me. I don't expect much from them because they can't. But if I start to fight and Nick, Saspi, who is a cop, doesn't do anything, I'm frustrated at him. He has the power, he has the authority to change things, but he doesn't. So it's one thing for people to, to feel like God can't. It's another thing for you and I who sit here, and as I went through that first point, you said, John, I get it. I already believe God can do the impossible. It's another thing entirely to wrestle with the fact that even though God can, he won't. And so faith is not just about believing that God can do the impossible the impossible. Faith is not just about a contentment with God's, or it's not just about a confidence in God's ability. Faith is more importantly about a contentment with his his activity. God, I know that you can, but I'm okay if you don't. Three, verse 18, and this was the verse that really changed my life and it stuck with me, and it says this, or they go and say, our God can, listen, but even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, our God can, and I'm going to put my trust in, in that he really can change things. But even if he doesn't, it's not going to affect my faith. Even if he doesn't, it's not going to affect the resolve that I have. More than my confidence in God's ability, I have a confidence in God's goodness and his wisdom. And so what that means is that we may ask for very, very good things, things that we seem to things that seem to be very, very good, and God may say no. And you have these boys who say, regardless of the response that I get, it's not going to affect my faithfulness. My faithfulness is not contingent on a future because I know my God. Knowing God means that you don't have to know the future because if you know and trust in God's goodness and his wisdom. Those that know how good God is will never fear the future regardless of how uncertain it is because God's goodness is certain and it doesn't change. These boys put their confidence not in a particular scenario, but in a faithful and a good savior. And they know instinctively like the rest of us know that the quickest path to discontentment in this life is when we hold God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. When we judge God's goodness based on an outcome or a future that we set in our mind. What's going to take place is that's only going to lead to discontentment because we may not get the thing that we hope for and then we're going to judge God based on the things that we hoped for but we didn't get because He didn't promise them. The key to faith is not, it's not just if I believe then God will do. If that was the case then God would be my servant. And God's not that, He's God. If I believe God may do, God can do, and we're going to trust that He will do. But even if He doesn't, it's not going to lead us to change the way that we feel of, about God. Nor is it going to put us in a place, regardless of how hard it is, where we rail our fists in anger towards this God. If you ever find yourself at a place, where you think, I'm frustrated with the way that God did things. I wish that God would have done something else. Then what that is, is is it's us saying in our hearts, I really wish that God would change. And if in our hearts we believe that God should change the way that we did things, then what that means is that, We don't believe that God is perfect because if you're perfect, you don't change. So saying that I really wish God would have done something else that would have been better is our heart saying, I really don't know. I'm not sure if God is perfect like he says he is. God may need some help to do his job. And if God needs help to do his job, then that's not a God that I want to serve. Even if I don't think that I'm the one that can help him, if there's somebody else that has to help him, I don't want to go to God. I want to go to the somebody that helps him. And the second that that seed is implanted in our heart, I wish that God would have done something else. That's the quickest path to disobedience from God because we're convinced that there's some good to be found outside of God. Genesis 3, it starts there and on and on and on. It's the same pathway. Since 2014, one thing that I've done at the top end of each year is I read this one book by a guy by the name of Richard Baxter, and it's called Dying Thoughts, right? Great read at the start of the year. This pastor got to a place where he was really, really sick and thought that he was going to die, and he saw just how weak his faith was. So what he does is he writes this book, and at the front end of, of the book, what, what he says is, I'm not writing this book for nobody else. Well, he didn't say it like that, but that's what he meant. I'm not writing this book for nobody else. I'm writing this book because I see just how weak my faith is, and I need to remind myself or convince myself that death, as hard as it may seem, it's not a bad thing. And and so he writes this book, and it's a great book to read at the front end of the year, to remind ourselves, today is what we have right now. We all know there's so many people that we thought would see this year that haven't. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that that's the end of all of our roads. And I want you to hear what, what, what... what he writes. He says this. I hope that I shall never dare to say that God is mistaken or that I could have chosen better for myself. Many times has the wise and good will of my God crossed my foolish and rebellious will and afterwards I perceived that it was best. The more I have tried him, the better I have found him had I better obeyed his ruling will, how much more happy would I have been? Many times has God's will crossed our own, right? The only thing that I can guarantee you this year is that everything is not going to work out the way that you hoped that it would. That's a guarantee. But if we serve a God that we're confident, can do the impossible. If we serve a God that we trust his goodness so much that we're content with what he does, then it'll guard our faith even in the most trying times. The thing about the end of this story is that they have faith that God will save them and God does save them. So we lose the force of their faith if we read this story and just stop here at this story. One thing that you'll find out, you may be new to church. One thing that'll help you make sense of this book right here is this. Everything in this book is meant to point to Jesus. If you read something in this book and you interpret it, and you don't see the trajectory of how it gets us to Christ, you may get very, very good things from what you read, but you're not going to get the point of it all. So the beauty of this is the prayer, the confidence that they had in this great God, right? it turned out well for, for, for them. But you fast forward, and one thing that you find out is that there was somebody else that prayed a prayer that had both of these things in it, And it didn't turn out well for him. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. As Jesus is in the garden, what he says is this. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus believed that God could actually do the impossible. So he asks him, remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And what we have is a picture of somebody who had a confidence in God's ability, a contentment with his activity, and the answer to his request was no. God was not going to remove the cup. When we find out that God won't do the good things that we ask him to do, It leads us to a place where the first thing, right, that we feel is, well, maybe God said no because he didn't love me. Who did God love more than Jesus? Or you may find yourself in a place where you say, maybe God said no because I didn't have enough faith. I just need to have more faith. Who had more faith than Jesus? Nobody. Maybe God said no because he's punishing me for my sin. Who was more blameless than the perfect son of God? Nobody. And so what we find out is that Jesus, the person who God should have been whatever you want, if the criteria for God answering prayers was that he, with a yes, is that he loved us or we have enough faith or we didn't do wrong. But Jesus, we see this faith and we see This resolve. And he carries it on all the way through death. And doesn't step back. And because he died. You and I who should have earned that death. Don't have to die to pay for our sins. Jesus did that. This is the beauty. This is the good news of the gospel. Anybody that wants a fresh start doesn't have to wait until the top of a new year. Anybody that wants a fresh start shouldn't trust in a new year because one thing that you find out very, very quick is the only thing that changed is that the sun went down and it came back up. New Year's Eve, as we've talked about time and, well, as I've said, is the most overrated holiday that exists. There's nothing really that changes. But the beauty of what Christ did here is that he actually makes change possible. The relationship that we long for with God. Jesus doesn't just provide the pathway for us to get there, but he empowers us and lives inside of us. So much so that when the Bible says that God looks at us for those that have repented our sins and trusted in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect life of his son, Jesus, which means this. He is inclined to respond positively to our prayers, even if the positive answer is no. Knowing God means that you don't have to know the future because we have something better than the future. We have a faithful Father and Savior that cares for us. And this doesn't just like the faithfulness that we see in Jesus is a thing that spreads to those that follow. I want you to see Jesus' faithfulness was amazing But it wasn't unique in the sense of somebody that has faith that'll take them all the way until death. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Polycarp? Polycarp was a disciple of John. And so what took place was he lived in a time where Christians were being brutally slaughtered and killed. And so here's the story of his death. And it says this, he was promised freedom if he would just recount and deny Christ. Here's the first thing that he says. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any harm. Somebody to say, I've served Christ, and he never did me any harm. Harm comes. Life didn't work out smoothly for him, but because he knew the God that he served, he looked at life through the lens of God's goodness, and even the hard times was not God doing harm to him. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So then they take him out and they're getting ready to feed him to beasts in a stadium. And they say, recant and we'll let you live. And he says this, let the beasts come for my purpose is unchangeable. So they don't feed him to beasts and then they take him. And what they say is, we're going to burn you with the stake. You have this one last chance to recant on Christ, or we're going to tie you up to the stake. Set it on fire. And what he says is this. You threaten me with a fire, which will perhaps burn for an hour and then soon go out. But y'all are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God, which is prepared and reserved for the punishment and torment Of the ungodly. But why do you delay? What's the holdup? Bring on the beast or the fire or whatever you choose. I guarantee you that you won't, by either of them, move me to deny Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And he was burned at the stake. And the fire came. And it lasted for an hour, and it's gone. And he's in everlasting joy with his Savior. What is it that makes this possible? This faith. It's not just saying have more faith. God can do it, and you need to be okay with what he does. That doesn't change anybody. Do you know the thing that changes people and gives them the ability to endure hard times and maintain this faith? A better hope. Hope of a better future. That this is not all that there is. If you think this is all that there is, then you're going to live your life to protect this. If you're confident that what Christ has really done in dying on the cross is purchased us a better hope so that this is not all that there is, but for the Christian, this is the worst of what there is. That belief, that trust is what gives us the faith to remain faithful to God in the midst of a future that's uncertain. So how do we get there? At the front end of the year, there's so many things that we can resolve to do, I want to challenge you with one. Stick around. Find some place or some church that you call home and stay there and plant roots. Don't go from place to place. Listen, you don't even have to stay here You won't hurt my feelings. You won't hurt any of the pastor's feelings if this is not the place for you. Matter of fact, at the end of the time, you can come up to me and say, hey, John, I really need to find a place. This isn't the place for me. I'll help you find a place, find a church, a place that you can call home where the faithfulness of God is rehearsed over and over and plant roots and stay there. Form relationships with people that are a part of the church. Find out the places in their lives where they're doubting God's ability and speak truth to those things. Find places where they're discontent with the way that God has worked things out in their life and remind them of times where you looked back and thought God should have done something different, but it was the best thing that happened. Happened. If you find yourself right now in the midst of a time where you're frustrated with the way that God is doing things in your life, don't be silent. Doubt only grows in isolation. Voice those things, talk about them, and be amazed and be floored at how when those things are exposed and expressed, you're not the only one to go through it. Countless folks, in this room have gone through the same things. Countless folks in this book have gone through the same things and found this same God to be trustworthy and true. Knowing God means that you don't have to know the future because we serve a God that can do the impossible. And more than that, we serve a God that's trustworthy when even though he doesn't do the impossible, he's still working it out for our good. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are... Delighted that we can be confident in your word and the fact that you're good and you're trustworthy. There's so many things that come our way that make us not want to trust you. There's so many things that cause us to disbelieve that you're actually on our side. And I pray that you would give us an assurance that you are on our side, not based on our performance, but based on what Christ has done for us. I pray uh, that those of us that know this truth and rehearse this truth, but find that it really doesn't change us, God. Would you, by your Spirit, give us the grace to really internalize that truth, our great God and King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.